The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only, the, I, I think you're sick. You probably have the plague. No, Tammy, I'm not sick. I the just... Sasquatch underwear. I mean, underdog. I mean, underwood. I mean, under the table. <sighs> you're horrible. Hi, everybody. I'm not sick. I just have this gag thing going on. Man, well. Have your clients shower first. Oh, shut up. <laughs> I hate you. All right, so now we have an unsolved? We haven't done an unsolved in a long time. We haven't. It's been a minute. Yeah, and this is an unsolved from 1968. So close. Yet so, so far close away. So to 69. Oh. <laughs> uh, you just don't even know how glad I am that it's only 1968. Anyways. Uh, yeah, this is the murder of Sheila Jean Collins, uh, a former Iowa State University student who turned up dead one day. Ready? Right, okay. I'm, I'm following. Are you following? Mm-hmm. Now, um, it was a Friday night in 1968 when the Iowa State freshman Sheila Jean Collins uh, packed up her suitcase to, for a trip home. Um she was in a hurry, so she tossed on a dark woolen coat before she left her dorm <laughs> to catch a ride uh, at, at this intersection down the road. That night, her parents and two younger sisters waited for her to walk through the door of their Evanston, Illinois home, but she never arrived. Two days later, the young woman's body was found along a, sec- a secluded gravel road. Now, when the officers arrived at the, on, on the snowy road, county road 15 miles east of Ames on January 28, 1968, they discovered Sheila's exposed body lying in a ditch. She was posed on her hands and knees with her hips raised and her wool coat was draped over her body. She had a nylon rope wrapped around her neck and a metal pipe lay by. Now, her belongings were scattered, including the large suitcase she had packed in anticipation for her trip home. Her jeans had been removed, and her blue Pi Beta Psi sweatshirt was pulled up to her neck as she laid face down. The rest of her clothing hung on a wire fence near where her body was found. She wore a, uh, she had on a leather watch, but the it was no longer working. And her suitcase contained... You know, basically what a typical 19-year-old college girl heading home for the weekend would have. A Polaroid camera, a dusty sociology textbook, and a green dress. Um, News of her death quickly spread across campus as tips flooded investigators' phone lines. Despite the countless leads, the authorities never found definitive answers in her death. And unanswered questions piled up over the years. Um... Beyond haunting investigators for decades, Sheila's murder left a mark on the Iowa State campus. According to one student at the time, it was like a slap in the face for a lot of women. It just caused you to think differently about your personal safety. Many students followed her case intently. They were waiting for any news that would ease their fear and confusion, but that news never came. The case went cold, and a disturbed atmosphere settled over the campus there were a couple of suspects that drifted in and out, but nobody has been held responsible for Sheila's death. Um, no, she, she couldn't wait. She was 
uh, Sheila couldn't wait to go home. You know, she was supposed to go home, visit her, to see her boyfriend, Ira, for the weekend and spend some time with her family. Now, he was, Ira was supposed to actually drive to Ames to pick her up from school and take her back to Evanston, but something happened and he couldn't come that night. So she had put her information on a green, you know, on an index card entitled it Going My Way. And they, she put it on the ride board in the Union Hall, right? And a lot of students did this back then. So it's not something uncharacteristic. Um, she, uh, but, but, but. at approximately 7.30 p.m. on January 26, 1968, Sheila received a phone call that she had been waiting for. Someone saw her card and offered to give her a ride. Uh, her roommate at the time told told the Chicago newspaper that she was excited to be going home to see Ira. Um, according to uh, the roommate, this caller told her to be ready in a few minutes, and she eagerly accepted the ride. She asked her roommate to walk her to the intersection where she was supposed to meet this person, but the roommate said, you know, I don't think so because, you know, it's just five minutes away. Just go. She, so she packed her suitcase. Check this out. She borrowed $2 for traveling money. Two bucks ain't going to get you nowhere nowadays. No. <laughs> Threw on a sweatshirt and called her parents to let them know she was coming. Then she walked down to the, the meeting point. At 8.30 p.m., she hopped into a dark blue Volkswagen and to head out on the 355-mile drive. On noon the next day, her parents reported her missing. On Sunday afternoon, Iowa State University veterinarian Roger Hogel and his son Jeff were out hunting between Nevada and Colorado. Oh, between Nevada and Col- apparently, you know, never mind. Never imagine what his what he and his son would find that day. Um, he was looking in the ditches and stuff, and I don't know what he was looking for. He was only eight years old. He said, Dad, Dad, I see a kid's foot. Apparently, Jeff had stumbled across a body lying in a ditch five miles east. Um, then Jeff... Uh, that uh, Roger said he drove to the sheriff to the courthouse and it's always been my opinion that they probably knew who it might be because I'm sure they had me missing people's reports then he told law enforcement about the body and they and then went back and blocked the road to prevent incoming traffic from finding the scene at that time there was no houses on that road so all it was was an isolated area uh, the body that Jeff had found was that of a petite young brunette girl only partially dressed and with her belongings nearby. Now, James Collins arrived Monday and confirmed that it was his daughter. She was one to stay. She normally one to stay away from trouble. Her, her house mother at the Elm Hall described her as quiet, studious type. And she was well-liked and apparently didn't have any quarrels with anybody. So this stunned everybody at the university. Um, she was born in Elmhurst, Illinois on August 2nd, 1949. In the, in the 50s, her parents, James and Muriel, moved their family to Evanston, Illinois, and had Sheila's younger sisters. In Evanston, Sheila lived two doors down from Randy Calm, a boy a few years older than she was. Randy, Sheila, and her sisters all hung out together in the same neighborhood circles. They played games, chased each other around playing capture the flag, and built tree forts. Sheila and Randy attended school together but grew apart with age. They both attended Iowa State where Sheila studied communication and they always greeted one another in passing. Randy said that Sheila was a sweet girl and he described her as a goofball. My favorite ex-wife just waved at me. (laughs) 
He described her as a goofball and she and said she had a goofy smile. Evanson is also where Sheila fell in love with her high school sweetheart, Ira. The two attended different colleges, but were planning on getting engaged. While the distance was difficult, she and Ira stayed strong in love. A card found in Sheila's belongings after her death showed the care Ira had for her. Um, the card said, needless to say, things would be different if you were nearer to me. That could be the reason why I don't write that much. I do miss you and I do love you. Sheila frequently would doodle in margins in her class notes, writing Ira plus Sheila. Remember doing that in high school? Yeah. You still have one, don't you? Maybe. <laughs> on, my pe- on my peachy folder. <laughs> on your peachy folder. Because <laughs> you need the times tables. Mm-hmm. I miss those. And the trapper keepers. I'm telling you. Gone are those days. Um... Uh, According to uh, an undergraduate student by the name of Joyce Durlam, women largely felt safe on campus at that time. So accepting a ride from the ride board was a common way to get home when not everyone had access to a vehicle. Women had to walk to and from their dorms and sorority houses to study at night, and they weren't afraid to do it alone. However, Sheila's death changed that. We were kind of on the cusp in 1968, 1969 of things really changing. There were things kind of brewing beneath the surface, but we were less aware or less concerned about it at that time. Her mar- her murder marked the age, end of the age of innocence for women on that college campus. Um, the sheriff at the time, J.I. Shelley, was the lead investigator in Sheila's case. On Monday, the day after her body was found, he told the media that detectives had not identified any suspects. He Investigators had collected evidence at the scene, including her personal belongings and the rope around her neck. However, evidence collection for homicide at that time looked very different than it does today. He said, you go back to 1968, nobody knew DNA was even gonna, going to be a thing. The current investigation, said the current investigation sergeant from that county in Nevada, Iowa, so what they would have collected back then is completely different than how we would process a scene now. In 1968, fingerprint technology was still evolving. Other technologies like forensic testing and GPS tracing were non-existent. And in Sheila's case, many leads were cut short due to the lack of evidence. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but you look at 1968, how, how do you get caught committing a murder? If you're killing someone that you don't personally know, you should have gotten away with it every time, right? You would think. Yeah. So an autopsy was ordered and results confirmed that the nylon rope and metal pipe were used to strangle her. And the, t- the killer secured the pipe to the rope, rotating it to tighten the grip around her neck. So, At least she thought it out. Yeah. Oh, could you imagine? Um, I call that foreplay. So, continue. <laughs> Tuesday evening. <laughs> so based Every on the... day. <laughs> you Sometimes I do it to my own damn self. Ew. Not spanking my butt. Thinking. Okay, Dennis Raider. And then and and then I send a little texty poo to your mom, saying, "Hey, baby, how you doing?" And that's when you got shot. <laughs> so, based on the autopsy report, investigators concluded that she was killed in a different location from where she was found, and the killer later disposed her body there. All, the autopsy also reported that there were no signs that she had been raped, according to 
uh, inspector wrote, however, the medical examiner's conclusion might have been flawed. He believes it's very likely that Sheila was sexually assaulted. He, he goes, you stripped her down, left her naked, posed her on her hands and knees. It's obviously sexually motivated, right? Well, yeah, that's a, it's a posing position. Yeah. With her ass up in the air and she's buck-ass naked. So yeah. you would think, yeah, yeah. kind of goes hand-in-hand hand right there, hand-in-hand. Yeah, so without DNA technologies, testing for sexual assault in 1968 involved the use of light and magnification to look for minor tears or trauma. However, many sexual assaults do not leave a physical record on the victim's body. How do you describe it wasn't sexual just because there's not penetration? That would leave some sort of a trauma. Um, According to former uh, county attorney, there were other missteps in the investigation as well. Uh, Mary Richards said there were definitely some things that hadn't been done at the time of initial investigation that should have been done. The medical examiner, for instance, had not taken fingernail scrapings, which is something that would be a standard thing for a medical examiner to do in a suspected homicide. A sample of Sheila's fingernail scrapings could have proved provided forensic evidence connecting a potential suspect to a crime. Additionally, the day after her body was found, her rideshare card was still posted at the Memorial Union and not been dusted for fingerprints. Sheila's body was cremated in Des Moines within days of her death, which eliminated the possibility of collecting more evidence. Um, According to a historian and researcher, Nancy Bowers, they responded to a call about 4.30 p.m. And then within two hours, the body had been removed to a funeral home in Ames. And by 8.30 that night, it was over and she had been cleaned up. On Wednesday, January 31st, her funeral service was held at St. Matthew Episcopal Church in Evanston. And while her family mourned, the Iowa State community sought answers about her murder. In February, six more agents were assigned to her case full-time, joining two Ames police officers and the the Story County Deputy Sheriff. The Iowa State Daily established a reward fund for any information leading to an arrest in her murder. Now, by March, investigators had conducted more than 700 interviews and followed up on 200 leads. The detectives worked to interview as many people as they could before the investigation dried up. They spoke with her family, friends, roommates, and anyone else who might have information. Several witnesses had seen Sheila enter the car the night of her death, and they described a conventional-looking young man driving a dark blue Volkswagen sports car with an oval-shaped window. Volkswagen has a sports car? Yeah, the Carmen Ghia. The who? The Carmen Ghia. Never heard of it. Yeah, it's a small little sports car. Never heard of it. Either wi- everybody, when you think VW, thinks of the Bug or the Jetta or the Passat. I think of the little van. Oh, yeah, the hippie van. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll give it that. But yeah, they had a car. It was called the Carmen Ghia. Did not know that. Other witnesses... Uh, Described a man of average height and weight with short, dark hair sifting through cars at the rideshare board the night before. A female Iowa State student told investigators a man driving a blue Volkswagen had offered her a ride after she posted her number on the board. However, the man drove away after he noticed her brother waiting with her. Now, initially, Sheila's boyfriend was a suspect in her death. However, he was quickly ruled out after completing a polygraph test. Ira has an ironclad alibi. He and Sheila called frequently, and the phone records indicate they spoke as late as 7 o'clock at night. And he was in Illinois, so there's no way he could have been could Plus, have been a suspect. His name is Ira. We've never covered anybody killing I know. By the name, with a damn name like Ira. That's a pretty... Yeah. That's a, 
It's no, a pretty white boy name, huh? It's pretty fucking white, man. Like, I'm white, but like... You're not that... You're not, not Ira white? I'm not Ira white. I'm just saying. <laughs> just saying. But I digreg. Now, one lead directed the the officers to a Iowa... I mean, sorry, a highway gas station... Soon after the murder, officers received a tip that five college-aged boys had been spotted with a long-haired girl at a service station along the highway the night she disappeared. The service station was located a mile southeast of where her body was found. Additionally, when her body was found with a handful of change, despite the fact that she left the dorm with $2, leading investigators to believe she and the killer had made a stop after she was picked up. The lead was promising, but officers reached a dead end shortly after. The investigators also explored whether the killing was connected to another death nearby. The same day that Sheila's body was found, another girl was found dead only two counties away. Oddly, the 20-year-old student was also named Sheila. Sheila Harrison's body was discovered in Fort Dodge about an hour from Ames. Officers never uncovered a connection between the two deaths, though. Um, investigators gave undue time and energy to even senseless leads. Uh, a faculty member's wife, Barbara Gordon, dreamed that a man named Armstrong had killed Sheila. She felt compelled to contact investigators who took the dream seriously enough to send an Ames police officer and a BCI special agent, Warren Stump, to interview her. Gordon looked up the name in the student directory and found a man named John Wayne Armstrong. Armstrong was from Skokie, Illinois, a town located minutes away from Evanston. Armstrong was thoroughly investigated solely because a woman had a dream about him. His application. I had a dream that that Squatch killed a lot of people and murder, and they're buried all along everywhere. That was my dream, and just for law enforcement, just in case you're looking for the suspect. And I shut up. I hate you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um. Let's see, where was I? You made me lose my place. Oh, so anyways, John Wayne Armstrong. That's a white name, too. I'm just saying. But that is a murder name because we have John Wayne Gacy. You can have a John that's Wayne true. Armstrong. That's true. That is a murder name. That's that's a kill him. That's a kill him that, name. That's a kill him name, but it's still white as hell. Not fucking Ira, though. <laughs> you, you, if, if it's a crime with an Ira, you're going to hear about like a bank robbery, embezzlement, um, so you're not going to hear like an Ira McClenahan killed five hookers. You don't hear. You don't I, hear about that. I no. have yet to see one person named Ira that has murdered anybody. <laughs> um, and he's so white, he, we know he ain't murdering no pussy. So, <laughs> anyways, according to John Armstrong's. Uh, application to ISU, it was reviewed. His courses and grades were scrutinized and his automobile was tracked and his comings and goings to Skokie, Illinois were followed. Even though he had done nothing suspicious nor had any criminal record, the investigators took Gordon's claims so seriously that they encouraged her to be in touch if she had future dreams. They pursued every lead in her case but found little answers. Eventually, progress on the case stopped. On July 4th, 1968, uh, the sheriff told the media that his office was no longer invest actively investigating her murder. Decades of questions have loomed over her homicide, and no one has ever been charged with the crime. After following up on countless leads and conducting hundreds of interviews, investigators narrowed the list of suspects to a few possible candidates, according to uh, 
Inspector Road, any one of them could have committed the crime. When you look at the suspects, you almost think that any one of them could have done it. It's not like most cases where you're lucky to find one subject that you're pretty confident is your main one. None of the suspects in Sheila's murder had any connection to her while she was alive. Even more confusing is that no clear motive for the crime has emerged in the years since her death. Uh, none of them have ever really been cleared. The primary suspects are the ones that there was no way to clear them, and they were still viable suspects. Well, I see a motive, though. Okay. There's, a, there's a sex aspect. Yeah, me too. I see it, too. I mean, what's the best way for somebody not to press charges against you for rape if they're dead? That's true. And it's, it's sick and it's sad, but it's the truth. Yeah. Dead people don't press charges. I'm so, telling you. I'm thinking this dude picked her up, raped her, mm-hmm. killed her, and posed her. Yep. I think so, too. Now, we do have four suspects in this case. Okay? One of them's name is Tammy Sue Underwood. No. And she lives in Beaverton. No. Oh. I bad. wasn't alive in 1968. Sorry. I'm still going to make you the suspect. You're still going to make me the suspect? I think you're the suspect. Nope, only if it was 69, dude. Okay, anyways, the first, in June of 1968, authorities brought in one of the first strong suspects in Sheila's case. Case. Arthur emerged as a suspect after officers caught him calling women who had left their phone numbers at the rideshare board in the memorial unit. Arthur was polygraphed back in 68, and he showed signs of deception on using a fake name. There was something going on around about the same time of guys calling females and wanting to meet up with them. Um, According to Anthony Rode, the current investigation sergeant for the county sheriff's office, he was actually caught by Ames PD when they were doing some sort of sting operation where co-eds were being called on the phone using fake names. Arthur admitted to calling more than 30 female students using a false identity. He attempted to convince the young women to meet him on campus at night. One woman reported that he asked her to meet him on Lincoln Way, which was where Sheila was picked up. And according to a police report, he was sexually aggressive toward at least one female student. When these allegations were made, Arthur was married and the father of a young child. Okay, okay. Even though he was aggressive, it doesn't make him a killer. It makes him an asshole. Yes, that's but true. But doesn't make him a killer. Right. Arthur, then a graduate student at Iowa State, lived near campus at the time she lived murder. He was a man of average height and build with short brown hair, and his appearance fit the description of the man witnesses saw picking Sheila up. Detectives asked about the car Arthur was driving in January 1968, and initially he told them he was driving a yellow Mustang. However, he did later admit to borrowing a blue Volkswagen, which he was driving the month Sheila disappeared. He told detectives he purchased a new car on February 5th, claiming he had forgotten which car he was driving at the time of the death. When investigators searched the trunk of Arthur's new car, they discovered rope that matched the nylon cord used to strangle Sheila, and he was not able to explain why he had it. A year after Sheila's death, another woman was killed in a homicide in Burlington named Dorothy Miller. A real estate agent was contacted by a young man who asked her to show a house at night. During the showing, she was struck in the head, tied up, raped, and stabbed. The killer left her naked from the waist down with her dress and bra pushed up around her neck. Investigators speculated that the killing might be linked to Arthur. 
The killer used a fake name and said he was from Des Moines, where Arthur was living at the time. Like Arthur, the man said he was married and had a young child, and witnesses described the killer as a young man of average height and built with short brown hair. Um, Miller's husband, Dorothy Miller's husband, who had seen the killer, helped investigators create a composite sketch of the suspect, and Arthur strongly resembled the man in the drawing. Despite being a person of interest in two homicides, he was never charged in either crime. Investigators questioned his guilt in Sheila's murder because of his spotless record and lack of criminal history. In addition, a polygraph exam did not find signs of deception when he claimed to have no knowledge of Sheila's death. Um... Polygraph tests were prevalent in criminal investigations decades ago, but research suggests their validity is questionable. Um, there is no evidence that any pattern of psycho physiological reactions is unique to deception. An honest person may be nervous when answering truthfully, and a dishonest person may be non-anxious. Today, Arthur still lives in the Midwest and works as a business executive. Public records reveal no evidence of a criminal history. Then another suspect, Gary Lederman. These are such it was white him. names. It was him. It was Gary. It was Gary Lederman? That's him. That's your man. Why? Just because that name, Lederman. Oh. Sounds like a used car salesman. <laughs> I know. Another primary suspect in Sheila's murder had a gl- glaring criminal record. Gary Lederman was convicted of killing a woman named Jane Mixer in Michigan in 1969. Mixer's and Sheila's murder shared several similarities, which led authorities to question whether there was a connection in their deaths. Like Sheila, Mixer left her name on a rideshare board at her college, hoping to catch a ride home. She never made it. Her body was found in a rural area covered by her coat. Her other belongings were displayed near the body similar to Sheila's. Mixer was strangled to death, and Lederman shot her twice in the head afterward. In 1968, Lederman was 26 and working as a traveling pharmaceutical salesman in, in the upper Midwest. He had an average build and short brown hair. And according to his 1969 roommate, he was obsessed with the Michigan murders committed by John Norman Collins in the mid-60s. The similarities between Mixers and Sheila's murders were suspicious, but investigators never found enough evidence to link Lederman to Sheila's death. He died at age 74 in prison in 2019. Um, In 2004, decades after her death, one man even confessed to killing her. Clarence was the same height and built that witnesses described at the time of the murder. He was living with his uncle in Minnesota, and he would have been about 17. The problem is he didn't live in the state at the time and had no connections to Iowa State. (laughs) Jesus Christ, man. Now, the details Clarence provided in his confession didn't even match what investigators knew about the case. He claimed to have been arrested in Minnesota, and he told officers he stabbed Sheila and disposed of her body in a river. He even referred to her as Cindy Collins. Nothing that he said matched up. While Clarence remains on the suspect list, uh, Inspector Rhodes does not believe he killed Sheila. Clarence suffered from a severe mental illness that is believed to have driven him to confess to a crime he didn't commit. And then suspect number four, Bernard. That's a white ass name too. Bernard is the last suspect in Sheila's case, seemed to be a likely culprit given his criminal history and a series of suspicious circumstances that followed the murder. He was a tall, lanky man with reddish blonde hair who worked as a graduate student lab tech at Iowa State. He is known to be difficult, highly sexed, suspicious, easily angered, controlling, and a perfectionist. 
He joined the, Bernard joined the army in the early 60s, but was dishonorably discharged for being AWOL and unfit. A chronic liar with an exaggerated sense of importance. He invented facts in his biography, according to investigators. He married three times throughout his life and had one child. He was kind of, he was kind of the creepiest out of them, said Inspector Road. Bernard came to investigate his attention in 1968 when one of his co-workers sent an anonymous note to the Story County attorney. The note said Bernard, who was disliked at work because, because of his abrasive personality and paranoia, drove a blue Volkswagen and had scratches on his face after her murder, after Sheila's murder. Adding to suspicions, on the night Sheila disappeared, Bernard called his wife at 10 p.m. to let her know he would not be able to pick her up from work because he had a flat tire. He later said he had fallen while changing the tire, which is how he received the scratches on his face. His wife said he returned home without his glasses, which he said he lost in the fall. Yet the timeline that the investigators pieced together about Sheila's death made it difficult to see how Bernard could have committed it. His flat tire occurred on North Dakota Avenue in Northwest Ames. That meant he would have had to pick up Sheila on campus about 8.30, drive about 15 miles, kill her, dispose of her body and belongings, then drive about 21 miles back, flatten his tire, and call his wife by, two, by 10 p.m. Additionally, his wife told investigators there was no way he could have driven that far without his glasses. The Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation, now known as the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, twice administered a polygraph to Bernard about Sheila's murder in late October 1968 in Des Moines, and deception was not found either time. It is the opinion of the examiner that Bernard was not implicated in the awful killing of Sheila Collins or that he had any guilty knowledge of the same. The polygraph report concluded. Um, Bernard's criminal record began after Sheila's death in 1968. In 1969, Bernard was arrested by Ames police for prowling but was not found guilty. Two years later, Cedar Falls police arrested him for contributing to the delinquency of a minor by taking photographs of underage girls. He was convicted in 1972 and received a three-year suspended sentence with probation. A year later, in 1973, Cedar Falls police arrested him for accosting and annoying in connection to the previous charge, and the court found him guilty of that. In February 1976, Des Moines police arrested Bernard for lewd, lascivious, and immoral acts to a child, which stemmed from an earlier charge of molesting girls, and those charges were reduced or dropped. Police in Tennessee also had a warrant out for his arrest, and we because he was accused of stealing $30,000 as well as photographic and electronic testing equipment. And, but the warrant was never served because he disappeared. He obtained a passport with a stolen identity and fled to Israel, where he was caught stealing and was forced to leave the country. Authorities believe he's living in a different country under a false identity now. Bernard's family and friends haven't heard or seen him since 1977. His former wife, to whom he was married at the time of Sheila's death, told the detective later that she believed he was capable of committing murder, though she could not recall owning a blue Volkswagen. In addition, Bernard did not match witnesses' description of the driver who picked her up, picked up <laughs> Sheila, or the man driving a blue Volkswagen who lured other female students to a truck stop via the rideshare board. Now, Half a century has passed since Iowa State freshman Sheila Collins was murdered, and investigators today have found themselves at a standstill. I think a lot of it, it was a lot of little things that came together. You know, not one big thing, but a lot of little mistakes or oversights and not maybe seeing possibilities. Lack of technology 
jurisdiction issues, errors in evidence collection, and politics each had lasting effects on Sheila's case. The first challenge, uh, yeah, where was I? You're being mentally challenged. You know what? I'm going to hit you. The first challenge started as soon as the bodies was the body was found. Investigators needed to determine which law enforcement agency would be responsible. It sounded like it was a a big, for lack of a better term, clusterfuck back when it happened. Um, you had an Iowa State student, so you had ISU involved. Then you had it taking place to pick up an taking place to pick up in Ames, and then the body was dropped in the country. It, you know, dropped further away in the cu- county. Investigators from all over the country worked on Sheila's case, but the primary investigating agencies were the Story County Sheriff's Office, Ames Police Department, and the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Um, now known for the Iowa... Uh, you had three different agencies working on it, all collecting their own stuff, and it was all separated for quite a while. Um... Today, the Story County Sheriff's Office is the primary investigating agency and holds most of the evidence. Once it's determined that they would be the primary investigator on a murder, the other agencies began to transfer. Um, but there was a major piece of evidence missing. They cannot find the pipe anymore. Investigators' bias also contributed complications. Old profiles and forensic reports revealed that they used sexist and racist logic to analyze her case. You could... You go back and read the FBI profile. It's really, really, really bad. Not good. It's sexist and it's racist. Despite claiming to have no authority over local crimes, an agent from the FBI responded to a request from BCI for input in Sheila's case. According to this, uh, FBI agent Walter McLaughlin wrote in the letter, she does not appear to be an attractive girl and therefore there does not appear to be any reason for someone becoming infatuated with her or having a great desire for her. Can you imagine an FBI officer saying that? Hey, what can I say? She's an ugly chick. <laughs> she was no, just you know a what? victim that of circumstance. Her name happened to be on the right board no, to suit the killer's purpose. That tracks, man. Nobody kills the ugly chicks. Look at her homely ass out there in the snow. Nobody going to kill that. Why have I been murdered yet? Because I'm damn good looking. Take what I said to heart. <laughs> just saying. You're going to live forever. There ain't nobody murdering you. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying about it. I hate you. <laughs> nobody be killing the ugly motherfuckers. I cannot believe an FBI agent said she's not attractive, so why would somebody kill her? This bitch ugly as a motherfucker. Are you leaving? Oh. Okay. I was like, you better not be leaving yet. (laughs) Gotcha. So, um, where was I? Oh, there we go. The Nancy Bowers, the historian I talked about earlier, who's been studying Sheila's case, said the report was insensitive and had elements of victim blaming. That was pretty crude stuff, you know, blaming the victim. And of course, again, you have to look at the time frame, saying she wasn't attractive, so therefore nobody wants to rape her. That's just an atrocious comment to make. I agree. Damn, look at her ugly ass. Ain't nobody raping that. She didn't even trim up or anything. She's got a goddamn tree growing out of her crotch. There's probably Oopa Loopas or something living up in there. (laughs) They're all frozen now. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. In the, in the letter, McLaughlin questioned the postmortem report that claimed Sheila was not sexually assaulted. If sex of some intimate nature was not involved, it would have been unnecessary to remove the victim's clothing. While analyzing the murder, McLaughlin assumed it was a young white man because black men do not go in for this fancy dance stuff. <laughs> they ordinarily rape accompanied by brutality, but do not use sadistic refinements such as a pipe and nylon cord. Dude, he's so racist. Despite the FBI's belief that the murderer was a white man, many people of color were brought in for questioning in Sheila's death. One of the difficulties is that when people are thinking about a killer, they think, oh, this is a mouth-breathing, knuckle-dragging monster. He had to stand out, which is why the police went around and every black person they found, they interviewed and brought in because they're the others, they're the different. And but that must be who did it. That was the same in the zebra murders, though, uh, from San Francisco back in the, about the same time period in the 60s. Right. They were issuing cards. Yeah. Yeah. And they would stop every black man mm-hmm. and sit there and, and question them because somebody saw black guys killing those people. Yeah. It's, so y'all y- out there, you got to keep in mind. The times where you're just coming out of uh, like you're 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 in the same you're, you're just coming out of like Martin Luther King and and you know people standing up for uh, you know different ethnicities to have you know their rights right um, you know this is the the era right just outside of like Rosa Parks right you know who refuses to sit in the back of the bus things like that so you you got a lot of hubbub going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, and people pissed off just because you're black. So of course they're going to haul in all the blacks, you know. And right. I, 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 I'm not trying to you know trying to you know push like a liberal agenda like oh my no. god black. But it's just that's just a sign of the times for the '60s, and it right. sucked. It, it did. Fucking sucked. Don't get me wrong. But well, no, because remember, in that's the case with the zebra murders too. I mean. They hauled in every black person, and they had to issue a card saying that they had already been questioned by and cleared by the police. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had to carry that card with them. So I remember that shit because I'm black and proud. Yeah, that's it. Now, um, do, do, do. investigators' bias hindered the timeline of the case as well, but so did the influence of outside sources. According to Bowers, uh, she believed that then Story County attorney Charles Vandeberg's political aspirations may have influenced his role in the investigation. She, Bowers said in an email, I think he wanted to use this case to springboard into political ambition or political activities. He's, uh, Sheila was victimized twice, once by the killer and again by the county attorney who misrepresented her and her life to the media who unknowingly reported the false information to the public. That's what happens to homely girls. I know. Sorry, this happens. According so. to, but you know what? I've seen her picture. She's pretty. Yeah, you know, I'm. I'm just. I. I don't even know what she looks like. She might be gorgeous. I mean, I've. I've seen some people who look at other chicks and, oh my god, she's a fucking dog. And I'm looking at her going, well, no, she's not. She's pretty good looking. You know, she's. I'm not runway model gorgeous, right? But still fairly good looking. Right. Well, at the time, Vanderberg claimed that Sheila was a student radical involved with drugs, and both of those were patently untrue. He died in 1978, but the information he gave to the press had a lasting impact on the public. I still run into people who say, oh, yeah, that was a girl who was dealing drugs and that they found out by, uh, found out by Kahlo. I don't know. Well, no, she wasn't. It's not fair to her because I think it's, beca- it's caused there to be a lack of interest in pursuing the case and in finding the truth. 
Now, according to Inspector Rhodes, solving Sheila's murder hinges on improvements in DNA technology. Every lead has been absolutely exhausted. The only thing that is really left left is if you could somehow get that piece of DNA. The sheriff's office retains a sample of DNA that was collected from the crime scene. So far, analysts of the strands have not been fruitful. They got a mixture of two DNA, one a female and one a male, but the chain is so broken and mixed together that they can't put any kind of a profile together that would allow us to identify someone. In recent years, several cold case murders have been solved using new DNA technology, and these prospects could allow investigators to connect existing forensic evidence to a suspect. Law enforcement even has access to DNA samples from websites like Ancestry. When individuals send their DNA sample to be tested, the company creates a profile for the person. If a suspect has a profile on these websites, investigators can use that DNA sample to determine whether it matches DNA from a crime scene. Even samples from a relative can provide enough genetic material to create a match. In 2009, the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation established a cold case unit, hoping that DNA advancements would lead to breakthroughs in older cases. Sheila's case was one of about 150 unsolved crimes under investigation. And in 2011, before any breakthroughs were made in Sheila's case, funding for the unit expired. For now, the murder of Sheila Jean Collins remains unsolved. And... Um, According to a former Iowa State student, this is what always haunted you. In the back of your mind, there was always the thought, they haven't caught the guy. He's still out there. And so, he may be in your backyard right now. Or Whoa. sitting across from me talking like a weirdo. He could be in your own living room. That reminds me, just like that one dude. Oh, what was his name? Lonnie Franklin Jr.? No. I. The Grim Sleep... Uh, uh, we, we we pulled this episode because I had I, we're going to redo him. Um, I don't remember. Oh, he's a white dude, but he killed his whole family. He was a VP of a bank. Oh 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 yeah 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 yeah. Like um, uh, List. Yes. List. John List. Yes. You know, uh, here's a dude who's very straight up. Like everybody knows him. He's really staunch and you know starched and. Kills his whole entire family and doesn't get caught until years and years and years and years later when he's right. at home watching America's Most Wanted with his wife. That with he's his remarried. wife. And she sees this thing on TV and doesn't even say, that kind of looks like you. Yeah. Hey, Herbert, this looks like you. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> this is not the killer you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> Jedi powers, man. But it could, it could be the same thing. You know, somebody yeah. could be sitting right next to their grandfather right now or great grandma or whatever and going, huh, that's really weird. And the dude's like, yeah, I hope they never caught the guy. That's odd. You know, meanwhile, he's like, I raped and killed this bitch. Right, right. That's weird. All right, is that all we're adding to that? That's everything on this case. Remember, boys and girls, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you happen to be getting your blogs, log on to Facebook. Join Citizens of Brutal Nation and interact with us. It's always a good time over there. We also have a Shopify account. For Printify. Printify. God damn it. Printify account for all of your swag needs, and there's some other stuff besides show stuff. We got uh, like Sasquatch stuff and, and all kinds of cool yeah. shit on there. Uh, this show's copyright 2023 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio, they're lying, thieving bastards. bastards. And we will talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.